This is how some people think of God. This is how some people imagine God. This is who they think he is. They think he's mean. He's mad at everybody. Very uptight. Cranky. Always in a bad mood. Just an angry father. Always frustrated because nobody can get their act together. Always upset. All the time. That's how many people view God. They think he's just out to clobber people. But God is actually the most welcoming, the most, believe it or not, the most approachable person in the universe. He's warm, gentle, kind, wise, patient, and firm. He really is a good, good father. And how you view God is the difference between religion and the gospel. Let me say that again. How you view God is the difference between religion and the gospel, the good news. How you respond when you sin, how you respond when you mess up big time, whatever it is that you did yesterday, this morning maybe, How you respond when you mess up big time reveals in that moment your view of God. When you sin, whatever that is, if your first reaction is to run from God and hide like Adam and Eve did, that's just a heart that has been informed by religion. Or when you sin, if your first reaction is to run to God, then that's a heart that's reformed, that's informed by the gospel by the life, death, resurrection, ascension, and soon return of King Jesus. So if you mess up and your first thought is, God's going to kill me, he's going to clobber me, then you don't understand grace. But if you mess up and your first thought is, I need to call God, I've got to talk to God right now, then you get it. You understand how your heavenly father works. You understand what union with Christ is all about. You understand why the word gospel means good news. Because it is good news. Here's what David will show us today in Psalm 30. Religion says, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. Gospel is this. I messed up. I need to call my dad. Religion is, I messed up. Oh my God, dad's going to kill me. He's going to clobber me. The gospel is, I messed up and I need to talk to my dad right now. This is what David learned. In Psalm 30, he will tell us about a time in his life when he messed up big time. He was arrogant. He was full of pride. Life was so good for David, he actually began to feel invincible. And pride rented a room in his heart. But David forgot that God opposes the proud. And that's exactly what God did. God opposed, Yahweh opposed David to get his attention again, to arrest his heart after he messed up big time. So turn in your Bibles to Psalm 30. You'll notice that the heading or the superscript says something like this in your Bible, I'm sure. A psalm of David, a song at the dedication of the temple. 
Well, we know that David did not write this psalm at the time of the dedication of the temple because he was already dead. His son Solomon built the temple long after his father David died. So David wrote this song sometime before he died, I assume when he was a young man. And this song, the way I see it, was a very popular worship song. And like many worship songs, perhaps it fell out of the regular uh, rotation for a while, but his son Solomon remembered this song. He, Solomon, I think, used to sing it in church when he was a little boy. So when the time came for the worship team to select what songs they would sing at the grand opening celebration of the temple, King Solomon probably said something like this to the worship leader. Hey, Chetiah. That's a, he- that's a Hebrew name. Hey, Chetiah. I don't care what songs you pick for the grand opening of the temple, but I have one request. you got to sing that one old song that my dad wrote. The one that talks about joy being an early riser. The one that talks about how joy comes in the morning. So this is the song, according to the superscript there, the heading. This is a song that they sang when the temple was dedicated by King Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. But why this song? Of all the songs that David wrote, why did Solomon pick this song? Why would would Solomon want this song, Psalm 30, to be sung at the grand opening of the temple? Answer Because in this psalm, in Psalm 30, David messes up big time. And he needs healing. He needs help. He needs forgiveness. He needs grace. So he cries out to Yahweh. And where would Solomon and company find forgiveness when they sinned? Where would they find grace? At the temple. Offering sacrifices, substitutionary atonement. Solomon actually prays like his dad in Psalm 30 in his prayer at the dedication of the temple. You can read it in 1 Kings 8. But Solomon prayed something like this. When they mess up, Lord, and you are angry with them, be merciful. Forgive them. And that's exactly what his dad, David, says in Psalm 30. And that's probably why Solomon picked Psalm 30 to be sung at the temple dedication. Because he saw it in his dad's life. He saw that God is merciful and kind to sinners. Okay, Psalm 30, look at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. And just a reminder, when you see the word Lord in all capital letters, in the Hebrew Bible, that's God's covenant name, Yahweh. And that's how I will read it. I will extol you, O Yahweh, for you have drawn me up and have not let my foes rejoice over me. O Yahweh, my God, I cried to you for help, and you have healed me. O Yahweh, you have brought up my soul from Sheol. You restored me to life from among those who go down to the pit. So in Psalm 30, at the beginning, David is recalling a time in his life when Yahweh answered his prayers and rescued him out of this situation that he was in. So David begins by saying, I extol you, Yahweh. He remembers how he was delivered and his heart just burst open with praise. He's praising Yahweh because Yahweh didn't let David's enemies triumph over him. David cried for help and the Lord healed him. And when David felt like a dead man walking, when he thought he was about to be pushing up daisies, the Lord brought him up out of the pit, out of Sheol. Well, what is 
Sheol. Sheol is the place of the dead. Uh, you, the grave is how you would say it. Life was so difficult for David at this point in his life that he felt like he was dying. I'm about to go into Sheol. I'm about to die. I'm about to go into the grave. David totally gets what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 8 and 9. The apostle Paul told the Corinthian church, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. So David says, yeah, that's what it was like. Just like Paul, I thought I was served a death sentence. I thought they were letting me pick out my last meal. But then Yahweh intervened and brought David up out of that place of impending death. We don't know what it was. We don't know what the backstory is because it doesn't really matter, does it? The point is that David thought he was a goner and the Lord intervened and spared his life. And that's why David says what he says next. If the Lord lets you get the last laugh on your enemies and he pulls you out of death and you somehow escape death row, that means your lips better start praising. And that's what David did. He became a chatterbox about the Lord. Look at verse 4. Sing praises to Yahweh, O you his saints, And give thanks to his holy name, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. David just can't seem to shut up. He extols the Lord in verse 1, and now he wants everybody at church to do the same. Notice that he calls them beloved in verse 4. The ESV translates this word as saints. I don't really like that translation there. Uh, But this is the Hebrew word for beloved, those people that Yahweh loves. It's actually a plural form of the Hebrew word hesed, which you've heard me mention many times. It's God's loyal covenant love. His steadfast love is how a lot of translations capture that word. This is a, a plural form of that. Here's what it means to be God's beloved, one of those who are loved with his hesed. It's this, the love and affection that God the Father has for his son Jesus, he has for us. Because we are in union with Christ, credited with his righteousness, adopted into his family, God loves us just as much as he loves Jesus. To be called beloved means that God loves you as if you were his only child. It means that the eternal love that God the Father has always had for his one and only son, Jesus, he now has for you, Christian, just as if you were his only child. Let that sink in. That's how God loves you, Christian. Because we have been united with Christ by his spirit, by the Holy Spirit, then God loves us now just as much as he loves Jesus. So in verse 4, David is speaking to all God's children. David is speaking to his brothers and sisters in the family of God. And he says, sing praises to Yahweh, beloved. Give thanks 
And this is the appropriate response to grace. We sing praise. We give thanks to God. Why? Well, David gives us the reason why in verse 4. Because God's anger is short, but his favor, his grace, his kindness lasts a lifetime. Now understand something. When David mentions God's anger here, he's talking about God's loving discipline. God disciplines his children because he loves them, because he is a good, good father. But the discipline is short-lived. Compared to God's unending, eternal favor, his discipline seems short. In fact, the Hebrew, get this, the Hebrew literally reads, his nose is short, or his nose is for a moment. Now, what does that mean? We'll come back next week and I'll explain it. Just kidding, I'm going to explain it now. In the Semitic languages of the ancient Near East, the word for anger is nose. What does that mean? Well, this word developed because what happens to a person's nose when they're angry? Their nostrils flare. Their nostrils flare out. And so the Hebrew word for anger is nose. David is saying that God's nose is short. His anger is short-lived, in other words. And now, of course, David is not speaking of God's anger per se. He's speaking anthropomorphically about God's discipline, how God disciplines his children. God's fatherly discipline is short. It's for a moment. His nostrils don't flare out for a long time. His nose is short. It's quick compared to his grace, which is forever. Scotty Smith said, If you are in Christ, God's favor rests upon you fully and permanently, and there's nothing you can do about it. I love that. So take that, Christian. If you are in Christ, there's nothing you can ever do to make God stop loving you. There's nothing you can ever do to move yourself out of his favor. You cannot disobey yourself out of God's favor. You cannot be bad enough that you slide out of favor with God. It's permanent. You are in grace. You live in favor. You make your home in his perpetual favor and unabated delight. And here's the kicker. There's nothing you can do about it. So take that. Jesus is not letting you go at all. No matter what you do, you are his. You belong to him. His favor is forever, perpetual, unabated. It's what we live in now and forever, unmerited, free, given to sinners to simply enjoy, just to enjoy it. And the response to this free favor is worship, thanks, gratitude, Psalm 30, David kind of stuff. Listen, if God's favor wasn't unmerited, if God's favor wasn't free, we wouldn't get into heaven. If grace wasn't free, we couldn't afford it, could we? If it wasn't free, we would not get into heaven. Mark Twain said this, heaven goes by favor. If it went by merit, you would stay out and your dog would go in. If you could earn your way into heaven by being good enough, by being a quote-unquote good person, whatever that means... If you could earn your way into heaven by being a good person, 
your dog would get in and they would slam the door shut in your face. It's this eternal assurance of God's favor, his eternal favor that lasts a lifetime that gives us joy. And yes, we may cry our way through the night, as David says here in Psalm 30. David says, weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. What he means is that God may discipline us and we may weep for a night, we may weep for a season, but joy will eventually come. God may discipline us because he loves us and will weep. And we will grieve over our sins. In Hebrew, it actually says, In the evening, weeping comes to lodge, stay the night. Weeping comes to stay the night. Weeping checks into the hotel of your heart for the night or for a few days or for a few weeks. But joy comes in the morning. Joy is a morning person. Joy is an early riser. What David is saying here is that when God disciplines us because of our sin, we may weep for the night, we may weep for a time, but joy comes in the morning, meaning restoration eventually happens, communion resumes, fellowship happens again. And we've all been there, right, where where our heart is drifting away from the Lord. You know what it's like. Maybe you're here today and your heart is drifting from Jesus and you're kind of like, I know I should love him, but I like living this way. We all have experienced that as Christians many times where our heart is drifting from the Lord and our darling sins and precious idols are just out there and we're like, oh, I really want to go on a date with them. Just a date is all. And then God begins to discipline us in a variety of ways. I'm not even going to unpack that, what what they may look like because there's many ways he could get our attention. So God begins to discipline us because he loves us to get our attention. And when we turn back to him, joy comes in the morning. Fellowship is resumed. We love him once again. In fact, it's actually shouts of joy come in the morning. So this isn't a joy that's like, hey, I'm only on coffee cup number one, so all you can get out of me is a smile kind of joy. This word is regularly translated as shouts of joy. We'll see that in Psalm 33. Weeping may book a room in the hotel of your heart for the night because you're being disciplined by the Lord and you may grieve over your sins. So weeping may rent a room for the night, but on my third cup of coffee, joy comes in the morning. Shouts of joy when fellowship is restored. God will restore and God will renew us and the darkness will lift eventually. And how does David know this? Because he experienced it. Life was so good for David once. I mean, life was just good. You ever had those those seasons in your life? And just life is good. And you're like, man, you're like, shouldn't a trial happen or something? Like, what's coming? Life was so good for David once that he let his guard down spiritually and he began to feel invincible, like he didn't need God as much. That never ends well, by the way. Look at verse 6. David will tell us about that time. As for me, I said in my prosperity, I shall never be moved. By your favor or your kindness, O Yahweh, you made my mountain stand strong. You hid your face. 
I was dismayed. To you, O Yahweh, I cry, and to the Lord I plead for mercy. What profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? Hear, O Yahweh, and be merciful to me. O Yahweh, be my helper. So David was feeling good. Life was good. Life was stable. God had blessed him. And then thoughts of pride, thoughts of self-sufficiency, feeling invincible, began to creep into his heart. And so David said, I shall never be moved. Nothing can faze me. And how did God respond? Respond, David tells us, verse 6, that God in kindness, in favor, God came in kindness to knock the swagger out of David's steps because he loved him. Didn't want him to keep living this way. When David says, you made my mountain stand strong, he means that Yahweh became like an immovable mountain in opposing David. God was like this gigantic mountain standing in front of David, daring David in his swagger to try to get past him. And so God hid his face, David says, which just means that their communion was off. Fellowship was broken. In other words, God was disciplining David in kindness, in favor, in love, to capture his heart again because he loved him. Listen, God disciplines us sometimes because he loves us. As Proverbs 3 reminds us, Proverbs 3, 11 and 12, My son, do not despise Yahweh's discipline or be weary of his reproof, for Yahweh reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. God disciplines us because he loves us. He comes to get our attention again in a variety of ways. Because sometimes we're like David in Psalm 30 and we begin to feel invincible. We begin to go through life as if we don't really need Jesus. We know we do, but we just kind of do our thing. Sometimes the way God disciplines his children is actually to hand them over to their sins for a season. Sometimes God will say, if you will, if you want it bad enough, you can have it. Go for it. As the Westminster Confession of Faith says, the most wise, righteous, and gracious God doth oftentimes leave for a season his own children to manifold temptations and the corruption of their own hearts to chastise or discipline them for their former sins or to discover unto them the hidden strength of corruption and deceitfulness of their hearts that they may be humbled. And to raise them to a more close and constant dependence for their support upon himself. And to make them more watchful against all future occasions of sin and for sundry other just and holy ends. This is exactly what David is experiencing in Psalm 30. David began to feel self-sufficient. He forgot that weakness and dependence is the way. And he became full of pride and developed a swagger in his step. And the Lord, because he loved David, came in to discipline him in order to draw him back into close fellowship. And we've all been there, haven't we? You hold on to your darling sins. You don't want to break up with your idols. Who wants to go through a breakup? I don't want to break up with my idol. I love it so much. And so your heart starts to drift. 
And then God comes because he loves us and he disciplines us in some way to get our attention. He stands in front of us like a mountain and says, I triple dog dare you to try to get past me. And some of us, Benji clears his throat, and some of us have been dumb enough like David to try it. I can get past you. I know what I'm doing here. Yeah, I, I know you're God and you have your word and everything and, and this is wrong. And say, I can manage this idol. I can manage this sin, Jesus. You don't understand, okay? I can, I can manage this thing. It's on a chain. It's locked in a fence. I can take care of it. So how did David respond? He was dismayed when he felt the Lord in front of him like a mountain. And he cried out to the Lord. And apparently the discipline was so severe that David felt like he was going to die. That's why he says, what profit is there in my death if I go down to the pit? Will the dust praise you? Will it tell of your faithfulness? The discipline was so intense and strong, David thought he was going to die. And he's like, if if I die, who's going to praise you? Don't, Don't let me die. Lift the hand of discipline. I repent. I come back to you. So in verses 8 and 10, David cried out for mercy. He cried out to the Lord to be his helper. Now David knows he needs Yahweh. He needs help. He needs the helper. No more self-sufficiency. No more, I got this. I, I, I can manage my idols. God's loving discipline knocked the swagger out of David's step. He messed up big time. And what did he do? He called on the Lord. David got it. He was scrolling through Instagram and he saw this meme on Instagram. Religion is, I messed up. My dad's going to kill me. And the gospel is, I messed up. I need to call my dad. I need to talk to my dad right now. David messed up and he called dad. He cried out to his heavenly father. He cried out for mercy because he knew he would find it. He knew he would find it even though he wrecked the car and had to call dad up. He knew he would find mercy. Ralph Davis says, The sins of God's people will not maroon them in a hopeless cul-de-sac of guilt. But even in their sins, there is a future and a hope because the God of the Bible brings his severity upon his people in order to lead them back into his mercy. That's Psalm 30. David got a little bit of that severity, a little bit of the Lord's discipline in order to lead him back to mercy. That's how sinful we are. If God didn't discipline us, if he didn't bring a little bit of that severity, a little bit of that heat down upon us, we would keep playing with our idols, wouldn't we? So he has to bring that discipline to bring us back to his mercy. God does that all the time. And why does he do it? Because he loves us. He really does. Because he really is a good, good father. He's the kind of God who, after you've really messed up and like wrecked the car, he wipes away your tears and then he says, let's go dancing. What do you say, son? Like, we wrecked the car, we got to make the call, dad. And he's like, well, let's wipe away your tears and then let's go dancing. That's what David says next. Look at verse 11. You have turned for me my mourning into dancing. You have loosed my sackcloth and clothed me with gladness that my glory may sing your praise and not be silent. Oh, Yahweh, my God, I will give thanks to you forever. David mourned because of his sin, because he messed up big time, 
And God disciplined him, hid his face from him. It was like an immovable mountain in front of him. And David saw that. His heart was pierced and he wept. But then grief gave way to dancing and joy because David repented because he turned back to God. And when he did that, he was clothed with gladness and he began to sing Yahweh's praise. And you can actually feel the joy exploding out of David's heart in these last few verses. What joy there is when we return to the Lord after a season of wandering, right? Let me say that again, because it's so wonderful, isn't it? What joy we experience when we return to Jesus after a season of wandering out there and flirting and going on dates with idols and you know, loving our precious darling sins. What joy there is when we return to Jesus, when we break up with our idols and say, no more, I want him. What joy we experience. Listen, we may wander from our Father for a season, but we never wander from his favor. You may wander from your Heavenly Father for a season, but you never, ever, ever wander from his favor. It's always there. It's for a lifetime, David says. God's favor comes with a lifetime guarantee. And so when we finally wake up and come to our senses, nothing has expired. Grace awaits. Grace is patient. And what joy we experience when we finally come home to our Father. You see that in the parable of the prodigal son, don't you? The joy that awaits. Maybe you're here today and you feel like David. Maybe you think God has hidden his face from you. And maybe you can be honest enough to admit that the reason God feels distant, distant is because of your sin. You know it. Whatever it is that you're hanging on to and don't want to let go of. And you know because of that sin, whatever it is, your communion with Jesus is off because your heart has begun to drift a little. And the closeness is gone. The fellowship is gone. And you know it's because of me. It's because of my sin. And you've been running from Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you say, you know what? I want to come home. You can do that right now. And towards, we're not even finished with the sermon. You can come home to Jesus right now. Just say, Jesus, forgive me. Take me back. And he's like, he will hug you and embrace you. And say, I've been waiting for you. He'll kiss your neck and not let you go. and Squeeze you tight and separate and put your face in his hands. Put your cheeks in his hands. He's I've been waiting for you. I love you. And then hug you again and do it all over again. You can do that right now. So you messed it big time, you wrecked the car, maybe got arrested, big deal. Call your father, call your dad, and you will be met with grace. Here are a few quotes from Puritan John Owen that have really helped me over the years to have a correct view of God. Owen said that believers are afraid to have good thoughts of God. They think it a boldness to eye God or to think of God as good, gracious, tender, kind, loving. And they think herein they do well. We think we're doing the right thing if we're thinking that God is mad at us all the time. If we, if we think, I'm doing the right thing if I view him as a cranky father who's ready to clobber me. We think we're doing the right thing, the true <clears throat> spiritual thing. 
or like I'm, I'm being really spiritual because I, I view God as angry and cranky all the time. He's kind sometimes, but the truly spiritual Christian never laughs, never sings, never dances because God never laughs, sings, and dances. And we think we're doing the spiritual thing by thinking of God being this way, thinking he's hard as nails and mean as a pit bull. And that's a lie from the pit of hell. That is not Christianity. John Owen also said, It is exceedingly grievous to the Spirit of God to be so slandered in the hearts of those whom he dearly loves. For eminently the Father himself loves you. Resolve of that, that you may hold communion with him in it and be no more troubled about it. Yea, as your great trouble is about the Father's love, so you can no more trouble or burden him than by your unkindness in not believing of it. He's using anthropomorphic language here to kind of describe God, how he feels when we're this way. It grieves the spirit of God when we doubt his love. But that's what we typically do, don't we? Especially after we've wrecked the car and got arrested. Again, John Owen is helpful here. He says, So much as we see of the love of God, so much shall we delight in him and no more. Every other discovery of God without discovering his love will but make the soul fly from him. But if the heart be once much taken up with this, the eminency of the Father's love, that heart cannot choose but be overpowered, conquered, and endeared unto him. This, if anything, will work upon us to make our abode with him. If the love of a father will not make a child delight in him, what will? Exercise your thoughts upon this very thing, the eternal, free, and fruitful love of the Father, and see if your hearts be not wrought upon to delight in him. I dare boldly say, believers will find it as thriving a course as ever they pitched on in their lives. Sit down a little at the fountain, and you will quickly have a further discovery of the sweetness of the streams. You who have run from him will not be able, after a while, to keep at a distance for a moment. When you begin seeing God as a loving father, you'll want him. You won't be able to stay away from him. The sweetness of his love will draw you in, even if you mess up big time. So learn it, y'all. Religion is, I messed up. My dad is going to kill me. And the gospel is, I messed up. I need to call my dad. Religion thinks, my dad is going to clobber me. I better run and hide. But the gospel makes us respond, I messed up. I need to call my dad right away. I need him. He'll help me. Let me ask you this morning. Do you have a religious view of God? Or do you have a gospel-informed view of God? Is your instinct to run from God or to run to him? Is your instinct to call him on the phone right away or drag your feet and fear going home because you fear he's going to clobber you? Listen, if you feel like you can't or you feel like you shouldn't run to Jesus because of your sin, because you are ashamed, that means you need to run to Jesus. That means the devil's doing his thing to keep you away from Jesus. Always run to Jesus. 
Always run to Jesus. Let me say it again. Always run to Jesus. Because you are always welcome home. God doesn't want you to run away from him, but to run to him. And Jesus will never stiff arm you or be so busy. He is attentive to your cries for mercy. David shows that here and shows us that here in Psalm 30. Nothing thrills Jesus more than to see one of his elect children come running to him, especially after they've blown it big time. Nothing thrills Jesus more than to see one of his elect children just come running, barging into his presence, just running into his arms. The kind of running into your arms like when kids run up to hug their parents and almost knock them down. Nothing thrills Jesus more than when you run into him like that, especially after you've blown it big time. So whenever you feel like you can't, or whenever you feel like you shouldn't run to Jesus because you feel unworthy, because you feel dirty, then that means you need to run to him. That feeling of I can't go to him now because I just sinned, that is a sign that you need to go to him. Not a sign to stay away. You're not in time out. When you think, I can't call dad, I can't call him, that's a sign that you need to. When you think, I can't go home like this, that's a sign that you need to. So don't run from him because that's never the answer. Kelly Capick said, run from him. That is the last thing he desires. Run to him. This is to understand the glory of the gospel. The last thing Jesus wants right now is for you to run from him. Run to him all covered with the filth and junk of this world and the filth and the funk of your sin and let him wash you and cleanse you with his blood. Listen, to run to him is to understand the gospel. To call him up when you mess up is to understand the gospel. Psalm 30 is telling us that the gospel gives hope. It's calling your dad when you've messed up, knowing that he's actually going to help you. When you spiritually wreck your dad's car, religion says, how could you? Look what you did. How dare you? But the first thing the gospel says is, are you okay? Come here. And you feel the warm embrace of your father. Steve Brown said, God designed the gospel to be astonishing. God designed grace to be amazing. And God designed the Christian life to be totally bewildering. If you make it less so, you change it into something that it isn't. Not only that, you rob it of its power. The gospel is this. You're forgiven, past, present, future. You're loved, and you can't be unloved, no matter what you do. And you are his. His. Think about that. Isn't that a beautiful word? His. We are his. We belong to him. Even though we mess up all the time and do David Psalm 30 kind of stuff, we are still his. Now, doesn't that good news make you want to run to him? Let's do that now. Heavenly Father, thank you for your grace, your kindness, your favor. Thank you first for sending Jesus to pay the penalty for our sins on the cross. 
what can we say? We're just in awe. And we thank you that you were so merciful and so patient and so willing to just forgive, forgive, cleanse, cleanse. Thank you that in your kindness you discipline us. It is hard to pray that and to say that and to think about that because we have to confront our own sin. But thank you that you are a good, good father and you won't let us get away. Thank you that we are yours. Do forgive us of our many sins. Lord, they are so many. Forgive us. If there's anyone here today, Father, who's been drifting and they know it, by your spirit, would you pull them back now, Lord? May we all leave here today renewed in our fellowship, in our communion with you. May we love you more and want to live for you. But Lord, may we understand and believe today that you really do love us, even though we mess up all the time. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.